Part three of Amy Foster by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Bologna Times. Amy Foster by Joseph Conrad. Section three. If it hadn't been for the steel cross at Miss Swaffer's belt, he would not, he confessed, have known whether he was in a Christian country at all. He used to cast stealthy glances at it, and feel comforted. There is nothing here the same as in his country. The earth and the water were different. There were no images of the Redeemer by the roadside. The very grass was different, and the trees. All the trees, but the three old Norway pines on the bit of lawn before Swaffer's house, and these reminded him of his country. He had been detected once, after dusk, with his forehead against the trunk of one of them, sobbing and talking to himself. They had been like brothers to him at that time, he affirmed. Everything else was strange. Conceive you the kind of existence, overshadowed, oppressed, by the everyday material appearances, as if by the visions of a nightmare. At night, when he could not sleep, he kept on thinking of the girl who gave him the first piece of bread he had eaten in this foreign land. She had been neither fierce, nor angry, nor frightened. Her face he remembered as the only comprehensible face amongst all these faces that were as closed, as mysterious, and as mute as the faces of the dead who are possessed of a knowledge beyond the comprehension of the living. I wonder whether the memory of her compassion prevented him from cutting his throat. But there! I suppose I am an old sentimentalist, and forget the instinctive love of life which it takes all the strength of an uncommon despair to overcome. He did the work which was given him with an intelligence which surprised old Swaffer. By and by it was discovered that he could help at the ploughing, could milk the cows, feed the bullocks in the cattle-yard, and was of some use with the sheep. He began to pick up words, too, very fast, and suddenly, one fine morning in spring, he rescued from an untimely death a grandchild of old Swaffer. Swaffer's younger daughter is married to Wilcox, a solicitor and the town clerk of Colbrook. Regularly, twice a year, they come to stay with the old man for a few days. Their only child, a little girl not three years old at the time, ran out of the house alone in her little white pinafore, and, toddling across the grass of a terrace garden, pitched herself over a low wall head-first into the horse-pond in the yard below. Our man was out with the wagoner and the plough in the field nearest to the house, and as he was leading the team round to begin a fresh furrow, he saw, through the gap of the gate, what for anybody else would have been a mere flutter of something white. But he had straight-glancing, quick, far-reaching eyes, that only seemed to flinch and lose their amazing power before the immensity of the sea. He was barefooted, and looking as outlandish as the heart of Swaffer could desire. Leaving the horses on the turn, to the inexpressible disgust of the wagoner, he bounded off, going over the ploughed ground in long leaps, and suddenly appeared before the mother, thrust the child into her arms, and strode away. The pond was not very deep, but still, if he had not had such good eyes, the child would have perished, miserably suffocated in the foot or so of sticky mud at the bottom. Old Swaffer walked out slowly into the field, 
waited till the plough came over to his side, had a good look at him, and without saying a word, went back to the house. But from that time they laid out his meals on the kitchen table, and at first Miss Swaffer, all in black and with an inscrutable face, would come and stand in the doorway of the living-room to see him make a big sign of the cross before he fell to. I believe that from that day, too, Swaffer began to pay him regular wages. I can't follow step by step his development. He cut his hair short, was seen in the village and along the road, going to and fro to his work like any other man. Children ceased to shout after him. He became aware of social differences, but remained for a long time surprised at the bare poverty of the churches among so much wealth. He couldn't understand either why they were kept shut up on weekdays. There was nothing to steal in them. Was it to keep people from praying too often? The rectory took much notice of him about that time, and I believe the young ladies attempted to prepare the ground for his conversion. They could not, however, break him of his habit of crossing himself, but he went so far as to take off the string with a couple of brass medals the size of a sixpence, a tiny metal cross, and a square sort of scapulary which he wore round his neck. He hung them on the wall by the side of his bed, and he was still to be heard every evening reciting the Lord's Prayer, in incomprehensible words, and in a slow, fervent tone, as he had heard his old father do at the head of all the kneeling family, big and little, on every evening of his life. And though he wore corduroys at work, and a slop-made pepper-and-salt suit on Sundays, Strangers would turn round to look after him on the road. His foreignness had a peculiar and indelible stamp. At last people became used to see him, but they never became used to him. His rapid, skimming walk, his swarthy complexion, his hat cocked on the left ear, his habit on warm evenings of wearing his coat over one shoulder, like a hussar's dolman, his manner of leaping over the stiles, not as a feat of agility, but in the ordinary course of progression. All these peculiarities were, as one may say, so many causes of scorn and offence to the inhabitants of the village. They wouldn't in their dinner hour lie flat on their backs on the grass to stare at the sky. Neither did they go about the fields screaming dismal tunes. Many times have I heard his high-pitched voice from behind the ridge of some sloping sheep-walk, a voice light and soaring, like a lark's, but with a melancholy human note, over our fields that hear only the song of birds. And I should be startled myself. Ah, he was different, innocent of heart, and full of good will, which nobody wanted. This castaway, that, like a man transplanted into another planet, was separated by an immense space from his past, and by an immense ignorance from his future. His quick, fervent utterance positively shocked everybody. An excitable devil, they called him. One evening, in the tap-room of the coach and horses, having drunk some whiskey, he upset them all by singing a love-song of his country. They hooted him down, and he was pained. But Preble, the lame wheelwright, and Vincent, the fat blacksmith, and the other notables, too, wanted to drink their evening beer in peace. On another occasion he tried to show them how to dance. The dust rose in clouds from the sanded floor. He leaped straight up amongst the deal-tables, 
struck his heels together, squatted on one heel in front of old Preble, shooting out the other leg, uttered wild and exulting cries, jumped up to whirl on one foot, snapping his fingers above his head, and a strange carter, who was having a drink in there, began to swear, and cleared out with his half-pint in his hand into the bar, but when suddenly he sprang upon a table and continued to dance among the glasses, the landlord interfered. He didn't want any acrobat tricks in the tap-room. They laid their hands on him. Having had a glass or two, Mr. Swaffer's foreigner tried to expostulate, was ejected forcibly, got a black eye. I believe he felt the hostility of his human surroundings, but he was tough, tough in spirit, too, as well as in body. Only the memory of the sea frightened him, with that vague terror that is left by a bad dream. His home was far away, and he did not want now to go to America. I had often explained to him that there is no place on earth where true gold can be found lying ready, and to be got for the trouble of the picking up. How, then, he asked, could he ever return home with empty hands, when there had been sold a cow, two ponies, and a bit of land to pay for his going? His eyes would fill with tears, and, averting them from the immense shimmer of the sea, he would throw himself face down on the grass. But sometimes, cocking his hat with a little conquering air, he would defy my wisdom. He had found his bit of true gold. That was Amy Foster's heart, which was a golden heart, and soft to people's misery, he would say in the accents of overwhelming conviction. He was called Yanko. He had explained that this meant little John, but as he would also repeat very often that he was a mountaineer, some word sounding in the dialect of his country like Gural, he got it for his surname, and this is the only trace of him that the succeeding ages may find in the marriage register of the parish. There it stands, Yanko Gural, in the rector's handwriting, the crooked cross made by the castaway, a cross whose tracing no doubt seemed to him the most solemn part of the whole ceremony, is all that remains now to perpetuate the memory of his name. His courtship had lasted some time, ever since he got his precarious footing in the community. It began by his buying for Amy Foster a green satin ribbon in Darnford. This was what you did in his country. You bought a ribbon at a Jew's stall on a fair day. I don't suppose the girl knew what to do with it, but he seemed to think that his honourable intentions could not be mistaken. It was only when he declared his purpose to get married that I fully understood how, for a hundred futile and inappreciable reasons how, shall I say, odious, he was to all the countryside. Every old woman in the village was up in arms. Smith, coming upon him, near the farm, promised to break his head for him if he found him about again. But he twisted his little black moustache with such a bellicose air, and rolled such big black fierce eyes at Smith, that this promise came to nothing. Smith, however, told the girl that she must be mad to take up with a man who was surely wrong in his head. All the same, when she heard him in the gloaming, 
whistle from beyond the orchard a couple of bars of a weird and mournful tune. She would drop whatever she had in her hand. She would leave Mrs. Smith in the middle of a sentence, and she would run out to his call. Mrs. Smith called her a shameless hussy. She answered nothing. She said nothing at all to anybody, and went on her way as if she had been deaf. She and I alone, all in the land, I fancy, could see his very real beauty. He was very good-looking, and most graceful in his bearing, with that something wild as of a woodland creature in his aspect. Her mother moaned over her dismally whenever the girl came to see her on her day out. The father was surly, but pretended not to know, and Mrs. Fenn once told her plainly that this man, my dear, will do you some harm some day yet. And so it went on. They could be seen on the roads, she tramping stolidly in her finery, gray dress, black feather, stout boots, prominent white cotton gloves that caught your eye a hundred yards away, and he, his coat, slung picturesquely over one shoulder, pacing by her side, gallant of bearing and casting tender glances upon the girl with the golden heart. I wonder whether he saw how plain she was, perhaps among types so different from what he had ever seen. He had not the power to judge, or perhaps he was seduced by the divine quality of her pity. Yanko was in great trouble, meantime. In his country you get an old man for an ambassador in marriage affairs. He did not know how to proceed. However, one day in the midst of sheep, in a field, he was now Swaffer's under-shepherd with Foster. He took off his hat to the father and declared himself humbly. I dare say she's fool enough to marry you, was all Foster said. And then, he used to relate, he puts his hat on his head, looks black at me, as if he wanted to cut my throat, whistles the dog, and off he goes, leaving me to do the work. The Fosters, of course, didn't like to lose the wages the girl earned. Amy used to give all her money to her mother. But there was in Foster a very genuine aversion to that match. He contended that the fellow was very good with sheep, but was not fit for any girl to marry. For one thing, he used to go along the hedges, muttering to himself, like a damn fool. And then, these foreigners behave very queerly to women sometimes. And perhaps he would want to carry her off somewhere, or run off himself. It was not safe. He preached it to his daughter that the fellow might ill-use her in some way. She made no answer. It was, they said in the village, as if the man had done something to her. People discussed the matter. It was quite an excitement, and the two went on walking out together in the face of opposition. Then something unexpected happened. I don't know whether old Swaffer ever understood how much he was regarded in the light of a father by his foreign retainer. Anyway, the relation was curiously futile. So when Yanko asked formally for an interview, and the Miss Too, he called the severe, deaf Miss Swaffer simply Miss. It was to obtain their permission to marry. Swaffer heard him unmoved, dismissed him by a nod, and then shouted the intelligence into Miss Swaffer's best ear. 
She showed no surprise, and only remarked grimly, in a veiled blank voice, "'He certainly won't get any other girl to marry him.' It is Miss Swaffer who has all the credit of the munificence, but in a very few days it came out that Mr. Swaffer had presented Yanko with a cottage, the cottage you've seen this morning, and something like an acre of ground, had made it over to him in absolute property. Wilcox expedited the deed, and I remember him telling me he had a great pleasure in making it ready. It recited, in consideration of saving the life of my beloved grandchild, Bertha Wilcox. Of course, after that, no power on earth could prevent them from getting married. Her infatuation endured. People saw her going out to meet him in the evening. She stared with unblinking, fascinated eyes up the road where he was expected to appear, walking freely with a swing from the hip, and humming one of the love-tunes of his country. When the boy was born, he got elevated at the coach and horses, essayed again a song and a dance, and was again ejected. People expressed their commiseration for a woman married to that jack-in-the-box. He didn't care. There was a man now, he told me, boastfully, to whom he could sing and talk in the language of his country, and show how to dance, by and by. But I don't know. To me he appeared to have grown less springy of step, heavier in body, less keen of eye. Imagination, no doubt, but it seems to me now as if the net of fate had been drawn close around him already. One day I met him on the footpath over the Talford Hill. He told me that women are funny. I had heard already of domestic differences. People were saying that Amy Foster was beginning to find out what sort of man she had married. He looked upon the sea with indifferent, unseeing eyes. His wife had snatched the child out of his arms one day as he sat on the doorstep crooning to it a song such as the mothers sing to babies in his mountains. She seemed to think he was doing it some harm. Women are funny, and she had objected to him praying aloud in the evening. Why? He expected the boy to repeat the prayer aloud after him by and by, as he used to do after his old father when he was a child in his own country. And I discovered he longed for their boy to grow up so that he could have a man to talk with in that language that to our ears sounded so disturbing, so passionate, and so bizarre. Why his wife should dislike the idea, he couldn't tell. But that would pass, he said, and, tilting his head knowingly, he tapped his breastbone to indicate that she had a good heart, not hard, not fierce, open to compassion, charitable to the poor. I walked away thoughtfully, and wondered whether his difference, his strangeness, were not penetrating with repulsion, that dull nature that had begun by irresistibly attracting. I wondered. The doctor came to the window, and looked out at the frigid splendor of the sea, immense in the haze, as if enclosing all the earth with all the hearts lost among the passions of love and fear. Physiologically, now, he said, turning away abruptly, it was possible, it was possible. He remained silent, then went on. At all events, the next time I saw him, he was ill, lung trouble. He was tough, but I dare say he was not 
acclimatized as well as I had supposed. It was a bad winter, and, of course, these mountaineers do get fits of homesickness, and a state of depression would make him vulnerable. He was lying half-dressed on a couch downstairs. A table covered with a dark oilcloth took up all the middle of the little room. There was a wicker cradle on the floor, a kettle spouting steam on the hob, and some child's linen lay drying on the fender. The room was warm, but the door opens right into the garden, as you notice, perhaps. He was very feverish, and kept on muttering to himself. She sat on a chair, and looked at him fixedly, across the table with her brown, blurred eyes. "'Why don't you have him upstairs?' I asked. With a start and a confused stammer, she said, "'Oh, uh, I couldn't sit with him upstairs, sir.' I gave her certain directions, and going outside, I said again that he ought to be in bed upstairs. She wrung her hands. "'I couldn't. I couldn't. He keeps on saying something. I don't know what.' With the memory of all the talk against the man that had been dinned into her ears, I looked at her narrowly. I looked into her short-sighted eyes, at her dumb eyes that once in her life had seen an enticing shape, but seemed staring at me to see nothing at all now. But I saw she was uneasy. "'What's the matter with him?' she asked, in a sort of vacant trepidation. "'He doesn't look very ill. I never did see anybody look like this before.' "'Do you think,' I asked indignantly, "'he is shamming?' "'I can't help it, sir,' she said stolidly. And suddenly she clapped her hands and looked right and left. "'And there's the baby. I am so frightened. He wanted me just now to give him the baby. I can't understand what he says to it.' "'Can't you ask a neighbor to come in to-night?' I asked. "'Please, sir, nobody seems to care to come,' she muttered. Dully resigned all at once.' I impressed upon her the necessity of the greatest care, and then had to go. There was a good deal of sickness that winter. "'Oh, I hope he won't talk,' she exclaimed softly, just as I was going away. I don't know how it is I did not see, but I didn't. And yet, turning in my trap, I saw her lingering before the door, very still, and as if meditating a flight up the miry road. Towards the night— his fever increased. He tossed, moaned, and now and then muttered a complaint, and she sat with the table between her and the couch, watching every movement and every sound with the terror, the unreasonable terror, of that man she could not understand creeping over her. She had drawn the wicker cradle close to her feet. There was nothing in her now but the maternal instinct and that unaccountable fear. Suddenly, coming to himself, parched. He demanded a drink of water. She did not move. She had not understood, though he may have thought he was speaking in English. He waited, looking at her, burning with fever, amazed at her silence and immobility, and then he shouted impatiently, "'Water! Give me water!' She jumped to her feet, snatched up the child, and stood still. He spoke to her, and his passionate remonstrances only increased her fear of that strange man. I believe he spoke to her for a long time, entreating, wondering, pleading, ordering, I suppose. She says she bore it as long as she could, and then a gust of rage came over him. 
He sat up and called out terribly one word, some word. Then he got up as though he hadn't been ill at all, she says, and as in fevered dismay, indignation, and wonder, he tried to get to her round the table. She simply opened the door and ran out with the child in her arms. She heard him call twice after her down the road in a terrible voice, and fled. Ah, but you should have seen, stirring behind the dull, blurred glance of these eyes, the spectre of the fear which had hunted her on that night three miles and a half to the door of Foster's cottage. I did the next day. And it was I who found him lying face down and his body in a puddle just outside the little wicket gate. I had been called out that night to an urgent case in the village, and on my way home at daybreak passed by the cottage. The door stood open. My man helped me to carry him in. We laid him on the couch. The lamp smoked. The fire was out. The chill of the stormy night oozed from the cheerless yellow paper on the wall. "'Amy!' I called aloud and my voice seemed to lose itself in the emptiness of this tiny house, as if I had cried in, the, in a desert. He opened his eyes. Gone, he said distinctly. I had only asked for water, only for a little water. He was muddy. I covered him up and stood waiting in silence, catching a painfully gasped word now and then. They were no longer in his own language. The fever had left him, taking with it, the heat of life, and with his panting breast and lustrous eyes he reminded me again of a wild creature under the net, of a bird caught in a snare. She had left him, she had left him, sick, helpless, thirsty. The spear of the hunter had entered his very soul. Why? he cried in the penetrating and indignant voice of a man calling to a responsible maker. A gust of wind and a swish of rain answered and as I turned away to shut the door, he pronounced the word merciful, and expired. Eventually I certified heart failure as the immediate cause of death. His heart must have indeed failed him, or else he might have stood this night of storm and exposure too. I closed his eyes and drove away. Not very far from the cottage I met Foster, walking sturdily between the dripping hedges with his collie at his heels. "'Do you know where your daughter is?' I asked. "'Don't I?' he cried. "'I am going to talk to him a bit, frightening a poor woman like this.' "'He won't frighten her any more,' I said. "'He is dead.' He struck with his stick at the mud. "'And there's the child.' Then, after thinking deeply for a while, "'I don't know that it isn't for the best.' "'That's what he said. "'And she says nothing at all now not a word of him. Never. Is his image as utterly gone from her mind as his lithe and striding figure, his caroling voice, are gone from our fields? He is no longer before her eyes to excite her imagination into a passion of love or fear, and his memory seems to have vanished from her dull brain as a shadow passes away upon a white screen. She lives in the cottage and works for Miss Waffer. She is Amy Foster for everybody, and the child is Amy Foster's boy. She calls him Johnny, which means Little John. It is impossible to say whether this name recalls anything to her. Does she ever think of the past? I have seen her hanging over the boy's cot in a very passion 
of maternal tenderness. The little fellow was lying on his back, a little frightened at me, but very still, with his big black eyes, with his fluttered air of a bird in a snare. And, looking at him, I seemed to see again the other one, the father, cast out mysteriously by the sea, to perish in the supreme disaster of loneliness and despair. End of Part 3 End of Amy Foster by Joseph Conrad